Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here, also a proud member, and today is June 11th. You're with another virtual City Club forum. We are, again, live from the studios of our public media partner, 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. We're very grateful for their partnership. Sheldon Whitehouse is the Democratic senator from Rhode Island. He's also chair of the Senate Judiciary Courts Subcommittee. And he's come to be renowned for a series of Senate floor speeches he made examining what he called a decades-long effort by conservative interests to remake the federal judiciary. These speeches followed a series of captured courts reports that he and the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee released last year, reports that detail the impact Republicans and millions of dollars of so-called dark money have had on the courts citing the nearly 200 judicial nominees, including three Supreme Court seats confirmed since President Trump took office in 2017. The reports maintain that many of these appointments were not based on any judge's qualifications or expertise, but rather on their ability to further the goals of the Republican Party. Those are serious charges indeed. Senator Whitehouse has spent a large portion of his Senate career spotlighting the effect of dark money in government. He's the author of Captured, the Corporate Infiltration of American Democracy, which describes how corporations use money to attempt to influence government officials and decisions. And to be sure, Senator Whitehouse knows a bit about the courts from prior to being in the Senate. He served as Rhode Island's U.S. Attorney and State Attorney General before being elected to the Senate in 2006. Today, we'll talk with him about what has come to be known as court capture and what it means for the future of an independent judiciary, the rule of law, and American democracy. If you have questions for Senator Whitehouse, please text them to 330-541-5794. That number again is 330-541-5794 to text your question. If you're on Twitter, tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the program. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the great but tiny state of Rhode Island, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. You had to go with size, didn't you, Dan? <laughs> size doesn't really matter, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, people yeah, identify right. as an extraordinarily long Thank coastline you, senator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> senator, um, what are we talking about when we use the phrase court capture? What are you talking about? Um, may I just say one thing? Because yes. we're just getting launched, and that is yes. that I couldn't be happier to be with the City Club of Cleveland. I know a lot about your storied history, and my friend Sherrod Brown in the Senate is a huge fan and uh, told me the story of the only time you let somebody speak without answering questions. That's right. When Robert F. Kennedy came to speak the day after Martin Luther King's assassination, and he spoke about it and left the podium in tears. So nobody had the uh, cruelty to drag him back to the podium. <laughs> That's right. So I'm, I'm honored to be with you. So what is We're honored, a we're court honored to have you, sir. Court capture. What do we, what do we a, mean by that? There's a well, well-known doctrine called regulatory capture, and it's prominently written about in economics, it's prominently written about in administrative law, and it's basically taking an administrative regulatory agency and turning it into a tool of the regulated industry. And court capture is basically taking that strategy and moving it out of executive administrative agencies and looking at courts in the same way. And 
so th that's what we're talking about. We're talking about courts that are no longer interested in impartial justice so much as having an agenda for a particular set of parties. So who's doing this? Well, it's a little hard to tell um, because it is heavily uh, funded by what we call dark money, meaning anonymous funding and big, big contributions. You know, $15 million in a single check, $17 million in a single check, um, but anonymous, laundered through groups that don't reveal their donors, so you don't know who is behind it. But if you look at the behavior and if you look at some leaks here and there, it's enough to draw a pretty solid picture. And it's a group of big right-wing interests and foundations that seem to be behind most of it. When you look at that uh, pretty solid picture, who do you see, though? I mean, is this, I mean, the, the sort of right-wing uh, bogeyman that, that people often talk about are the Koch brothers. Is that what we're talking yeah. about? The Bradley Foundation, the Koch brothers, um, the Mercers, uh, Donors Trust, which is a Koch-managed identity laundering shop that takes big donations and puts them through it so that you don't know who the actual donor is any longer. There are pretty constant clues. Senator Whitehouse, um, is any of this against the law? Um, some of it technically probably is, but for a number of reasons, um, there has been really no enforcement. And um, so it's really hard to tell because there, there hasn't been the investigative work done to determine what laws might or might not have been broken. Um, some of the groups involved are what they call 501c4s, which mm. under the IRS rules are in theory not supposed to get involved in politics, but the way that the IRS has been manipulated more and more, they've gotten into fully politics. I think that's in violation, certainly, of the spirit of the law. Um, but we've done a lousy job of fixing that. So whether it's a violation or a loophole, um, it's nasty conduct in a democracy one way or the other. Senator Whitehouse, uh, let me just remind our, our audience that we're, we're speaking with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. He is a member of the Committee on the Judiciary uh, and, um, and a chair of the subcommittee uh, on federal courts. And um, Senator Whitehouse, uh, much of this, I will say this came to my attention and your interest in leadership on this topic came to my attention during the um, hearings of, for the, the hearings for um, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And yep. um, you delivered um, some very impassioned remarks. And I wonder, I, we don't have the time to, for, you to, for you to redo all of them, but I wonder yep. if you could summarize, because they, there was a story and a narrative that you laid out there um, that some people will remember, many, some may have missed, but I think it's a really important kind of background for understanding all of this. Yes. It, I basically went through the stages of the capture operation, with the first stage being exerting control over who got selected for significant judgeships, particularly Supreme Court uh, positions. Uh, and that was controlled through an organization called the Federalist Society. Um, and during the time that this private organization was controlling the turnstile to the federal judiciary, they were also taking enormous anonymous contributions. And you don't have to be a very bright law student to figure out what the conflicts of interest are possible there. Uh, then once you've got your selected nominee, they ran political campaigns for them in swing states with lots of TV. 
through another group called the Judicial Crisis Network, which is the neighbor in the same office building, in the same floor as the Federalist Society, and uh, exchanges staff pretty regularly. And they're the ones who are taking these 15 and $17 million checks to pay for the big ad campaigns. And then once you've got your judge on the court and confirmed, there's a flotilla of groups that file briefs in the court as what are called friends of the court. Amici curiae is the Latin term. And it's a rule in appellate courts that people who are not the parties to the proceeding can have a chance to come in and have their voice just as friends of the court and file a brief. And what we see is these groups that have no real reason for existing other than to hide the identity of whoever is behind them. They don't make products, they don't do services. Um, coming in in flotillas of 10 or 12 to write briefs that are very um, like an echo chamber of each other, basically providing a chorus of instruction as to what they want the courts to do. And they also are, all of this is anonymously funded with big contributions. And there's every reason to believe that it's the same donors who are behind all three elements of the operation. There's a, a number of questions uh, that I have around this and that I'm sure our listeners have as well. And I want to remind you, if you have a question for Senator Whitehouse, you can uh, you can join us with that question when you text it to 330-541-5794 or you tweet it at the City Club. And the second half of the program, of course, is always devoted to your questions. Um, Senator, I just want to come back to something you said about the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network. You said they share, they, ver they, they are located on the same floor, in the, same, the same building, hallway. and they in the same hallway, and they, share, they frequently share staff. I want to just go back to the history of the Federalist Society for a second. Their name makes them yeah. sound as if they've been around since the Constitution was written, but that is not the case. No, they were started, I think, at Yale Law School by conservative students who objected to the, what they thought was uh, in, uh, liberal indoctrination um, in law schools from faculty and the liberal uh, leanings of their schoolmates. <clears throat> and it spread from there very quickly to law schools all across the country. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is totally appropriate behavior. If people want to get together and form groups, that's what we do. Um, and the groups got big and strong enough that they then opened a DC office, and it's that DC office that is right next to Judicial Crisis Network. And in that guise, it became a little bit like a DC think tank. And I'm not a big fan of DC think tanks, but there are lots of them, and this is not all that different than others, so there's no real problem with them having or being a think tank. The problem came when they inserted themselves into the process of judicial selection to the point that Trump was saying, I'm outsourcing my judicial selections to this private group. Now, if you were going to ask... Which, which he, said, year, he said that during the campaign. Said, yep, 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 repeatedly. And then his legal counsel said more or less the reciprocal, which is people say that, you know, we outsourced our judicial selection to the... Federalist Society. Actually, I am the Federalist Society, and I'm working in the White House. So what we did was we insourced it. So like it's a, it's a bit of a joke, but it shows the degree of control that the Federalist Society operation, the judicial selection operation within the Federalist Society, had over that process. And if you were to go to a first-year law student and say, okay, here's the deal. We're going to have a private group have control over who gets selected 
to the United States Supreme Court. Tell us what your concerns are about that. Every student would be able to come up with some really serious concerns, and they'd probably basically all be the same ones, particularly if you added that the private group was taking huge donations at the same time that they controlled the turnstile, and worse yet, they were taking huge donations that were anonymous at the time they controlled the turnstile. It's kind of an indefensible proposition. Would you have suspected, I mean, if, if Donald Trump had never said that uh, during the campaigns, but then, um, but then had these opportunities to appoint, to make the, the Supreme Court appointments that he, that he did, I mean, many people would have assumed that uh, this was happening with the assistance of the Federalist Society. Yeah, and I think there would have been a good deal of research into this that would have um, put a tag on it. But the fact that they did it in plain view and admitted it sort of simplifies the equation. I'd give credit to the Washington Post here. They did a very significant expose about this that showed the network of groups that were interlinked with this Federalist Society-based judicial selection operation and the person who led it, who's a character named Leonard Leo, and they were able to look at financial information and, and basically sum up that this was a $250 million operation. Somebody was spending a quarter of a billion dollars to make this work. So nobody spends a quarter of a billion dollars without expecting a return of some kind, and that's what raises all these questions. Who is Leonard Leo? Leonard Leo was then the executive vice president of the Federalist Society. When the Washington Post um, expose came out, he jumped away from that and went over to something called the uh, Judicial um, Education Project. I think they, no, Honest Elections Project, Honest Elections Project, which was a newly stood up voter suppression group. Um, and the woman who ran the Judicial Crisis Network jumped over to take his position running the Federalist Society um, elections operation. And just to make sure the knot is really tied, the Honest Elections Project is basically a renaming of a, another group called the Judicial Education Project, which is the sibling, the corporate sibling of the Judicial Crisis Network. So if you were to take this into court and ask the judge to pierce corporate veils, I think you'd have a pretty easy case showing that this is all just one big scheme. This may be a very obvious question, but it bears asking, I think, anyway. Um, the people who you allege have spent a quarter of a billion dollars on this process, um, you said they must want to get something out of it. What do they want to get? I think they want a court that will uh, deliver decisions that are consistent with their um, desires and their uh, will as to how America should operate. And it's particularly important for them to deliver things through courts because there are some things that even Republican legislatures just won't do. So for instance, if you had gone to Republicans in Congress and said, we want you to pass a law that allows special interests to spend unlimited amounts in politics, you'd have a really hard time getting that through, particularly without safeguards about the identifying who those special interests were spending unlimited amounts of money. Wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. But they went to the Supreme Court, and five to four, they got the Citizens United decision that said, oh, guess what? You can spend unlimited amounts of money in uh, politics. 
And oh, by the way, we're not going to enforce the transparency piece so it can be un anonymous, unlimited money in politics. Would you be as concerned about this if the Democrats were doing it as well? Or actually, I'm making an yeah. assumption that they aren't doing it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure that there are, once dark money became a thing in the wake of Citizens United, it took us a while to figure it out and catch up. The Republicans are usually a generation ahead in uh, political uh, technologies. Uh, but we did catch up. And in fact, I think in the last election, there was probably more Democrat than Republican dark money spent in the election. Um, but we have nothing like the organization unity, discipline, and sophistication of the Republican dark money operation. It's been at it longer, it's more coordinated, and it's run like a uh, corporation uh, running a very significant covert operation. There's central control, people get their different roles in it. Um, I think it's all carefully managed from a central node. Um, but like any covert operation, it builds in deniability to the central node. So, you know, the the basis for the Citizens United decision, and I'm like, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even try to pretend that I'm one. But my layman's understanding of the of Citizens United is that this kind of influence or that that corporations and others may seek is a form of political speech. We are devoted to the First Amendment, to freedom of speech. This is a way to uh, to to lobby the government. This is a way to to try to make your your wishes known to the government that represents you. Um, why is that so bad for democracy? Because speech is one thing and money is something different. Um, you could say that uh, gunfire is sometimes used to accomplish political results and is therefore a form of speech, but you would never say, we're not gonna regulate gunfire any longer because it could be speech, it could be used to try to influence political things. And in the same way, when you say that money is speech and therefore we're not gonna regulate it in any way, it overlooks the fact that money is also political pressure, it's also completely uh, undemocratic in the sense that a very few people have most of the money and a great many of people have none. So if that becomes your proxy for speech, you've just contorted uh, the electorate dramatically in favor of the rich. Um, and you know, at worst case, money is bullying, money is corruption, money is you know, sweetheart deals behind the scene. Money is a lot of stuff in politics that ought to be transparent and ought to be regulated. It's different than writing an op-ed to the Providence Journal. <laughs> right. The, the op-ed to the Providence Journal is, is certainly a very, like, sort of, you know, uh, any, any man kind of, every man sort of, sort of thing. Everybody's but, got the same chance to do that. Yes, that's true. It's, it's um, even. It, it is a, a level playing field with the Providence Journal or the Plain Dealer. And it's particularly worse when you say corporations can come in because we kind of actually are we the people, and corporations are full, full of people. So you could perfectly well have CEOs talk and vote and give money and encourage their workers to vote the way that is beneficial to the employer and all that kind of stuff. But the idea that you then stand up a corporation as an independent and separate entity that can spend its own treasury money in unlimited amounts and then hide who they are while they're going for what they want in politics, that does another division of the electorate. And it takes people who have their own voice, their own wallet, their own brain, and adds to them 
this extra corporate layer in which they basically can drive these enormous machines around and get much, much more power by virtue of the corporate machine that they can drive around in addition to their role as citizens. So this whole corporate citizenship thing is a real distortion, I think, of the founding father's view of what America was going to be. So let me, let me push back a little bit on this and, you know, sort of in, in this nation, we're devoted to the rule of law. The courts have yep. decided Citizens United in one way, and if we are devoted to the rule of law, then we say, okay, we're going to follow. We're going to follow this for as long as this is the precedent that has been set, or until we change the legislation, right? Isn't that the sort of attitude we should take towards all of this? Uh, not necessarily. You know, we're a robust democracy. The fact that the Supreme Court has decided something is certainly not uh, an immunization from criticism. The Supreme Court also decided the Dred Scott case. It also decided Plessy versus Ferguson. It also decided Lochner. Um, it's decided a lot of decisions that over the years we've learned were not only wrong but disgraceful. And we have to keep that history in mind when we're evaluating current work of the Supreme Court. And it becomes particularly acute when you've got the regulatory capture apparatus swirling around the Supreme Court and then perhaps not coincidentally, so often getting its way in five to four decisions that are driven by the five Republican justices who they helped get on the court. Uh, have you seen this happening at the level of the federal judiciary below the Supreme Court? They work very hard to, to get to uh, the circuit courts of appeal as well, both as a training ground and, and auditioning platform for future Supreme Court nominees and because circuit courts of appeal make important policy decisions as well. It's less of a big deal at the district court, trial court level. And when you're looking at the, uh, at the appointments to the Supreme Court of Neil Gorsuch, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, you believe that this is, this is exactly how they were placed on the list, how they made it through, how the friends of the court briefs were filed? They come exactly through that machinery there are some interesting questions about Kavanaugh because he used that machinery to get around the Trump list. He was not on the original Federal Society approved Trump list, but Leonard Leo escorted him around the list and he became the uh, favored candidate. All three of them had very, very significant Senate problems. Um, Gorsuch, because the Senate had done something unprecedented and denied President Obama the chance to put Judge Garland on the court. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh, because of all the nightmarish stuff that came out during his confirmation, which they just rolled over on. It's, I mean, it was a complete stampede that didn't get an honest look. Um, and then along came Justice Amy Coney Barrett, where the Republicans totally reversed themselves on the rule of, of uh, late in the president's term appointments and shoved her on the court with much less time remaining than they had used to justify blocking Garland in the Obama term. So every single one of those had a very peculiar stain on it in the way that it was done. And every single one was marked by that same judicial selection process. And every single one had the judicial crisis network millions spent on behalf of the candidates. And they've been ruling exactly as uh, they uh, as predicted. Senator Whitehouse, when you raise these issues with your colleagues uh, across the aisle on the committee, what do they say? 
Uh, mostly, they don't want to hear about it. This has been a really, really important political issue for Republicans. There's a reason that Mitch McConnell dedicated essentially the, the entire uh, Trump administration in the Senate to shoving um, justices and judges onto courts and breaking pretty much any Senate norm, rule, or tradition that stood in his way. Um, so this is a very, very big deal to them. I will say that I've gotten a little bit of traction recently on the question of the justices declaring where they get travel, hospitality, and gifts because they don't report the way circuit court judges do. They don't report the way members of Congress do. They don't report the way cabinet members do. They give themselves a really big break on what they report. Um, and Senator Graham, uh, Lindsey Graham, joined me in a letter to the Chief Justice saying, could you please explain to us what's going on? I think we wrote that in February and have had no answer. So then Senator Kennedy, who's the ranking member in my subcommittee, and I wrote a letter to the Marshal Service, which provides travel escort to justices when they travel out of Washington to ask them about the travel so we can compare what was reported to what the travel actually was. So those two things have been bipartisan because it's really hard to defend why a Supreme Court justice should have lower standards of ethics disclosure than anybody else at a you know, serious senior level in government. We're talking with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Uh, he's on the uh, Committee on the Judiciary. He's very well known uh, over this last year for a series of floor speeches he gave about the concept of court capture and the role of dark money in influencing the selection of Supreme Court justices as well as influencing decisions uh, at lower level bench, uh, the lower-level courts as well. If you have a question for Senator Whitehouse, uh, not just about court capture, but also about any, anything else, we have any, he is, uh, it is open season. As, we take on all comers. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a senator, and he, he well knows that you may have questions about other areas that he works on. He's very interested in climate, environment, and public works, as well as uh, finance, and he serves on the Committee on the Budget as well. So um, that covers just about everything. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is our guest, as I said. If you have a question, text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and you can tweet your question at the City Club, and we will attempt to work them in. Um, Senator, uh, can you, one of the first questions that came in actually prior to our program today, can you name one or more liberal or left-leaning activist groups or money sources of concern, or is it only the conservative groups that concern you? The... Um Conservative groups have developed this into a much more robust operation, and it has actually led to the appointment of three members of the United States Supreme Court and a considerable number of Circuit Court of Appeals judges, and those appointments have been accompanied by a lot of the mischief and uh, peculiarity that I have described. So there is not an equivalent track record on the Democratic side. There are groups on the Democratic side that would like to influence judicial selection and that do take dark money. But the solution that I propose to this, I'm not drawing attention to it just for the sake of drawing attention to it. I want to solve this problem. And the solutions that I propose would apply to all groups, doesn't matter their orientation. I don't think there should be dark money circling the Supreme Court. I don't think that when you're running ads for Supreme Court justices, you should be able to hide who you are. I don't think private groups should control judicial selection. And I think if you're going to show up in court as an amicus, you should be candid about disclosing who you're really there for. 
And that would apply across the board, whether you're the uh, Civil Liberties Union or whether you're the uh, Koch Brothers Americans for Prosperity. Senator, I'm going to ask you to take your hand away from your face because it interferes with the microphone. Oh, sorry. No, that's quite all right. Um, so have you spoken to liberal groups as well and major major concerns about dark money yeah. on that side known as well? Yep. Yep. And what we have is, um, I think, pretty much unanimous support from um, the vast majority of the um, Democratic side for cleaning up dark money, um, not only cleaning up in politics where it has such a corrosive effect in our elections, but making sure that the same rules for dark money in politics apply to um, dark money used to campaign for uh, judicial appointees. That's a bill that I have uh, in Congress right now, and I think it, it has really broad democratic support and um, really inconsequential. Uh, there's no democratic opposition that I can think of. No and Republican it applies across the board to okay. everyone. Oh, I see. That's another telltale here, you know. Democrats take dark money because that's the rule of the game right now, thanks to Citizens United. But at the end of the day, when it comes to a vote to fix it, the last time I took my bill to the floor, every single Democrat, 59 it was then, voted for it. Every single Republican who was voting voted against it. It died one short of breaking the filibuster. And we've had all this dark money menace in between. So um, you couldn't if you get want to one look at Republican. Who's trying to fix it, it's not one. I'll give uh, Senator Murkowski credit. She came to the floor and expressed her concern about dark money and said that she wanted to look into it more um, and that she, this was not a happy vote for her uh, because she was really concerned, but she did vote with the rest of her uh, colleagues. How much of the info, this is another question from our audience, how much of the information that you cite comes from the leaks that you mentioned? And do you think, depending on leaks, is a bit of a slippery slope? Most of this isn't really um, leaks. A lot of this comes from financial reporting that comes later in the process or through different avenues. Um, there's not a whole lot that's leaks. The one thing that we got that was interesting that came out of a leak was somebody hacked into um, some groups and then posted all their stuff online. And there was a lot of conversation about that. And the groups had, didn't contest that what they had been, what, what had been hacked was real and was theirs. And it was out of some of those emails that we were able to find uh, groups, what they called orchestrating uh, amicus briefs together in the US Supreme Court and not disclosing who was really behind the briefs. And it was kind of behind the scenes watching who was sending the money to the front group so that they could come in and, and file as amici curiae. It strikes me, Senator, that in all of this uh, coordination and there must be some documentation or uh, emails or some communication directly with the White House over these over the uh, during the previous administration. And is there no way to subpoena that in those communications, that information? Uh, I they took the position in the Kavanaugh hearing that we couldn't see anything that related back to his work there in the Bush days when he was working on getting 
judges appointed to the courts, um, and that this is executive privilege and deliberative process and all that uh, kind of stuff. So we have not had good luck digging into that. And um, frankly, we really haven't needed to very much because the point there is that the President of the United States had given a private organization say-so over the significant judicial appointments, and he concedes the point publicly. So <laughs> I, if we could find emails, I'm sure there'd be details that could come out and that would be kind of interesting and a little bit, you know, uh, educational. But the fundamental principle or the fundamental fact that mm. the Federalist Society this operation within the Federalist Society was running judicial selection for the Trump White House is not contested even by the Trump White House. That's really public record. As I've mentioned, we're talking with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island about the concept of court capture. You're also welcome to ask questions uh, about uh, other areas of, of his work as a U.S. Senator. The, if you have a question, you can text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. We will work it into the, the program. This is your City Club Friday Forum, and I'm Dan Malthrop. Uh, another question for you, sir, is, quote, court capture really, w really happening or are, is what we're seeing just the tradition of the party in power driving the upper chamber's agenda? The Republicans appointed many judges under Trump, and perhaps now we'll see the same action with President Biden. Does this kind of language, calling it court capture, actually undermine public trust in vital democratic institutions? There is a long history of um, the party in power appointing judges whose views are consistent with the party in power. That's, that's happened for pretty much as long as there have been judges. What's a little bit different and strange here is that by handing off the selection process to a private organization that was taking multi-million dollar anonymous donations, you allow private groups the chance to have, I think, undue and private influence in who gets selected. It's not just a question of they've worked for us, you know, we like them, they lean liberal, they lean conservative. Um, and you get a process where one circuit court judge said to me in some real dismay, you know, I'm watching colleagues on circuit courts who are auditioning for the Supreme Court and the way they write their decisions. They know they have an audience that is making the decisions about who's going to be elevated to the Supreme Court. They know pretty much what they want. A lot of it has to do with preserving dark money and, you know, closing labor unions and stopping voter protections and things like that. Um, and they are auditioning themselves in the way they write their Circuit Court of Appeals decisions to appeal to this group. And I think that gets a little bit toxic, particularly if the groups funding the selection are the same groups that are funding the confirmation, millions, and are the same groups that are then showing up behind front groups as amici curiae. And, you know, we'll look more into travel gifts 
and hospitality, but who knows? They could be providing an awful lot of hospitality at the same time. It's, there's a difference here that I read, somebody who's been in court a long, long time, and I think the behavior of the court confirms it. There are up to 80 decisions now in which the Republican majority, five to four, has rendered a, a verdict favorable to a big Republican donor interest. And if you look at the five to four cases, that's almost all of them. And it's just an absolute slew of victories for right-wing donor interests. And you don't have to be a very sophisticated political person to understand what they wanted and how they got it. So it, 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 uh, there's always, yes, there is always some politics around judicial nominations. Um, the question is, is it still healthy or has it gone toxic? And my concern is that it has gone toxic. Another question that kind of picks up where you just left off. Selection is the first step, but ultimately the Senate approves or not the judicial candidate. By digging deep into where the nominations may have begun, are you implying that candidates are not qualified, but they've been approved regardless? Well, we sure had pl plenty of candidates who were not qualified come through during the uh, Trump years. I think he set the modern record. In fact, I think he set the all-time record for the most uh, judicial nominees deemed unanimously unqualified by the American Bar Association. He had one beauty who blew up uh, in front of Justice Kennedy because he didn't know what a motion in limine was and didn't know what the Doe-Bear rules were. So if you're a lawyer, that's pretty elementary stuff. Um, so yeah, that is a problem. I think once you get to the Supreme Court level, you're not sending dopes up to the Supreme Court. The problem there is more this question of auditioning and whether they've spent their careers sending semaphore to the donor interests who control the Republican process to tell them that when, when your matter comes before the court, you can trust that I'll be with you because I'm already showing you this right here in this other decision down in the uh, DC Circuit or the Eighth Circuit. And um, that, you know, is an obvious concern. So are you saying, I just want to be clear about what I think I hear you saying, which is that in, over the course of your career, you've read thousands of decisions, and they used to seem like they were devoted to rule of law, to impartiality, to, to doing what's in the best interest of the American people. And that you've, the trend that you're seeing, particularly among uh, among those who have been appointed by Republican uh, in as Republican judges or appointed it through a kind of Republican process, Republican Party-led process, um, you're saying that those folks are are writing writing their decisions and making their decisions, issuing decisions, and then kind of adding coded language or including coded language in them to signal at the circuit court level. At the circuit mostly. court level. At the Supreme Court level, sometimes the signal is, this is what we want to do, come back to us with the right case. Mm -hmm. So the anti-union Friedrichs case that became Janus was signaled by one of the Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. uh, if you bring me a case like this, you know, you'll get the desire, you'll get the decision that you want. And that caused some of these front groups to go rushing out to court as quickly as they could and went into court and said, Your Honor, we want to lose. Quick, make us lose as quick as you can. I've been a lawyer a lot of years. I've never seen that happen, never heard of that happen. Because they, they want to, to be able to appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court. Then they rushed up to the 
Circuit Court of Appeals and said, Your Honors, we want to lose. Let us lose as quickly as we can. And it was just hop, hop, and then up to the Supreme Court, which had invited this question. And of course, as predicted, the labor unions lost. Um, but I think often of what the lawyers for the labor side in the Friedrichs and the Janus case must have thought as they walked into the Supreme Court and knew that the fix was already in on this case, that outcome was preordained, and pretty much everybody knew it. It's not the way courts are supposed to work. So but there's two levels of coded language happening from the bench. One to lawyers saying, you know, we want to, we, we need this specific kind of case so that we can issue the ruling so we that, we've, our... that we've all quietly and agreed that we're going to issue. And then the second yep. is, hi, I'm a really ambitious uh, j- jurist, and I'd really love to yep. serve on the Supreme Court, and I'll do your bidding. Yep. And I get exactly what you want me to do. So look, here, I'll tell you, I'll show you my wares. Those are really like serious charges, Senator. Yeah. Yeah. This is an incredibly serious matter. And it, it just keeps popping up. You know, it's not just the funding. It's not just the 80 cases. It just keeps popping up. It's the cases in which they overrule or disregard what would seem to be the conservative judicial doctrine in order to get to the outcome. And the, real, the biggest red flag for me is fact-finding. If you've been around appellate courts for a while, you know that appellate courts aren't supposed to find facts. District courts do that. Uh, And certainly not the Supreme Court, for Pete's sake. And the Supreme Court has gone on some real bouts of fact-finding in areas where if you know the law, you know that that fact was absolutely essential to the case. You pull the fact back out, and the whole case falls down. And the facts that they have found not only were questionable, but were actually wrong. And in the case of Citizens United, was provably wrong based on the way things played out after the case, indisputably. Not, this is not a question of opinion. This is a question of, of fact. And so why would, they, why would they do that? They're not supposed to do fact-finding at all. Why would you do wrong fact-finding? And once you did wrong fact-finding and the, the behavior of the world proved that it had been wrong fact-finding, why wouldn't you want to go back and clean it up? So, you know, all of it implies what we've seen in regulatory agencies in the past, which is that they get their minds aligned with a particular interest, and the way they do their decisions tends to advantage the interest. I suspect that a number of people listening, and I'm gonna, I suspect I'm going to get an email saying, I can't believe you let Sheldon Whitehouse say all of these horrible things about the Republican Party. And um, I want to invite our listeners, if you believe that um, that this isn't true, if you believe that uh, that there's another side to all of this, that you want to hear the other side, please do send us suggestions of speakers, people, uh, people who can talk about the rightness of this process. Um, this is a, sort of a bigger question that we've received from one of our listeners that uh, kind of pulls back a little bit on the broader stakes here. How can the State Department admonish bad actors around the world on subjects of corruption and non-transparency when our Supreme Court apparently supports the same in our own government? Yeah, we have that problem. Um, One of the prices that we pay for allowing these enormous rivers of anonymous dark money to flow into our politics to have immense effect in our politics. I mean, we went from being bipartisan on climate change to having this be a partisan issue you couldn't touch in a month. 
after Citizens United was decided and the fossil fuel industry ginned up its new weaponry. So it's really visible to the world what has happened. And we were long the beacon. We were the city on a hill. We were going to lead the world to new and better governance by the power of our example. And now we've got this wretched example of a Congress that is just riven with special interest influence and anonymous money in the tens of millions of dollars. And yeah, it, there's a real price for that in terms of the American brand overseas and in terms of our ability to defend rule of law around the world. As my friend Ed Markey is often saying about different issues, you can't preach temperance from a bar stool. And we're now on a dark money bar stool and we need to clean it up. In Ohio, there's another question here. In Ohio, there's, a, there's legislation pending which would add partisan designation to judicial races. As you know, we elect uh, just ju judges and our Supreme Court justices in the state of Ohio. While the federal yeah. appointments are appointed versus elected, the issue has opened up, opened the issue of whether judges are impartial while running in partisan primaries and or if they view legal cases through partisan or ideological lenses. Because of the growing influence of partisan in organizations, what do you think about the future uh, for public trust in the rule of law in this country at all levels? Well, I think we've got a, we've got a public trust problem. Uh, the public doesn't have confidence in its government any longer. And if you look at academic studies that look at Congress's responsiveness to the public, we're not responsive to the public. They can prove it statistically. We're responsive to big interests. It's the most powerful feeling in the American uh, electorate right now. And so we really have to clean it up, and we're going to try to clean it up in Congress. But, you know, once the dark money interests get a good enough foothold, they're going to fight back really hard. So it's not a walk in the park to fix it. The Supreme Court could fix itself on its own. And I hope that part of the troublemaking that I've caused will cause them to rethink a little bit what their behavior means for the reputation of the court that they serve and presumably dedicate their lives to and care so much about. Um, I don't just say this from the treetops. I filed like 15 briefs in the Supreme Court telling them right to their faces what my concerns are. So I, I think we have a collective responsibility in the United States of America to try to go back to a more honest, orderly, and transparent way of conducting ourselves in government and in uh, courts. There's a couple of questions here about potential remedies. Is there any possibility that Citizens United will be overturned or that the legislature could address those, uh, the challenges presented there? How would that occur exactly? Well, the, the obvious thing that the court could have done in one of several cases that have come to it after Citizens United um, was to say, hey, look, in Citizens United, we let the anonymous, mo the, the unlimited money into elections because we said it would not be anonymous, that there'd be accountability. That was an eight to one part of the decision. So now a case comes up that says, hey, we have trouble here. The money is not only unlimited, it's also anonymous. Help us fix it. And the Supreme Court says, no, decline to hear the case. Not interested. So they could fix it on their own by imposing the transparency requirement that they themselves actually said was essential to their holding in Citizens United. It, it's not reversing Citizens United, it's honoring its, its own terms. 
And then also we in the Congress could do it by passing uh, disclosure bills. And I'm the lead on the Big Disclose Act that is before Congress right now. The problem is that if you're in the dark money influence business, your number one priority is to make sure that you protect your dark money influence. That's the weapon that allows you to influence everything else. So that is the, 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 the keys to the kingdom for you. And that means that they will fight like panthers desperately to protect their ability to spend dark money. And that is why the Disclose Act has always failed and been filibustered. Another question uh, on, on a similar line. Trade associations who file amicus briefs can only do so if leave is granted by the court. Why not require an uh, appellate rule that requires financial disclosures and sources of funding in order to be permitted to file a brief? Yep, uh, we are. There's actually a, a rule, a Supreme Court Rule 37.6, that says you have to disclose anyone who helped to fund the, I think the word is publication of your brief. And the way the Supreme Court has read that it basically, or I shouldn't say that, the way the Supreme Court has allowed parties to read that is that all they have to do is disclose who paid for the printing, the publication, and the service of their brief. So if you're a front group sitting around whose job is to be a front group and take money from people to do things in their name, and somebody comes along and gives you a million dollars and says, go file that brief, they file the brief in their own name and they say, we paid for the printing, we paid for the publication, we paid for the service on the other parties, we have nothing to disclose. So there actually is a rule, but it's honored only in the breach by this ridiculous reading of it that the Supreme Court has allowed to persist. What about move to amend? How so? Well, this question was just asked, would you comment on the Move to Amend grassroots initiative to end corporate personhood and money as free speech? Uh, if, you, if you want to go back at the, um, those kind of constitutional elements, what the Supreme Court said were constitutional elements of the uh, Citizens United decision, unfortunately, you've got to amend the Constitution now. And that is an arduous, arduous process and a long one, and one that very rarely succeeds. So I think we're better off focusing on the world of the possible, which is trying to convince the Supreme Court that it's in its own interest to clean up the mess it made with Citizens United, and to work legislatively to do what we can within Citizens United to um, get transparency. And my view is that some of these groups are so mischievous and so up to no good and they've created this, what one writer called a tsunami of slime in our politics, that if they had to identify themselves, a lot of them would just go away because what they're, what they're doing is so awful that it would really hurt their brand if they couldn't hide. So I think that the disclosure piece not only cleans up the anonymity problem, but it cleans up a good deal of the unlimited money problem by forcing everybody out into the open to take responsibility in a democracy for their own political acts. Senator, another one of our audience members is asking if you could share your takeaways from the uh, Amy Coney Barrett questioning. Um, I've lived through a lot of these now. And 
we get more time with the Supreme Court justices than we do with circuit court and district court judges. But at the end of the day, it's really not much of an opportunity because you do have limited time. The nominee knows you have limited time. They go through really rigorous vetting and uh, mock hearings, um, and they learn all sorts of devices for stalling and delaying and what the easy out answers are. So it's much more of a fixed set piece um, exchange than a real sincere conversation most of the time. And particularly if there's nothing in somebody's background to uh, you know, draw out that wasn't apparent beforehand, and there usually isn't, um, it's a very frustrating and unrewarding process. And um, so it being frustrating, I think, is a, is a large part of it. Uh, but there are things that you can draw out. I focused on a phrase that uh, Judge Barrett used a lot, which is cases winding their way up to the court, and checked with her and said, by, by that, this is significant to you. This is part of the separation of powers process that filters cases, and it's, this isn't just like delay for delay's sake. And she said, yeah, no, this is part of, the, part of what you know, helps us be a, a good Supreme Court. And so in recent briefs, I've contrasted what has been happening with this hopscotch. Quick, I want to lose as fast as I can, Your Honor. Quick, I want to lose as fast as I can, Your Honor. Ah, now I'm in the Supreme Court. Give me the answer I want, Your Honor. Uh, that process, which I think is really degrading to uh, the system of justice and really degrading to the uh, Supreme Court. And because she had said that before, um, you know, it gave me an additional platform for, for argument. So there are, to your mind, as, as frustrating as it is, uh, great, useful things that come out of it. There can be very useful things that come out of it. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is the senator from, uh, Democratic senator from the state of Rhode Island, and he serves on the Committee on the Judiciary and, and uh, a number of other committees as well. Senator, we're just about out of time. Um, I thank you very much for taking time to be with us, and um, perhaps we can have you back to talk about climate change at some point. I know that's another issue very important to the state of Rhode Island. I would be glad to. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your storied history at the City Club of Cleveland. Well, next time we hope we'll have you back in Cleveland itself. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much, sir. And thank you, Dan. Much appreciated. And thank you for joining us for our Friday Forum. It is the annual Craig Spangenberg Memorial Forum created to celebrate Mr. Spangenberg's commitment to the First Amendment rights of all citizens. He was nationally known as a trial lawyer, and he founded and served as the first president of the International Society of Barristers. He was also past president of the City Club of Cleveland, and he remained a member for more than 50 years. We're grateful to the law firm of Spangenberg, Shibley, and Lever for their partnership. Thanks also to members, donors, sponsors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. We have a few of those coming up next week. On Tuesday, we'll talk with local and national experts about how the 2020 census results and recently passed legislation will affect Ohio's redistricting. And Thursday, we'll present a Pride Month forum about LGBTQ plus representation in arts, culture, literature, and the media. Before we go, we need to say a very big and important goodbye. Our colleague Stephanie Jansky, our director of programming, is leaving the City Club. Today is her last day. 
And I have to say, at the City Club, the work you see and hear happens because of people working very hard behind the scenes, and Stephanie is one of those people. Over the last seven years, we've presented more than 850 forums together. And if you've enjoyed any of them or felt like they helped you understand the community a little better or made your community a little bit stronger, a little bit better informed, that is because Stephanie Jansky worked so hard on it. Stephanie, you have been an amazing colleague, and I thank you for sharing your talents with us in this work we do for the community and for democracy. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our forum is now adjourned. Have a great weekend. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.